So the thing about meditation is, is, is that it's really foundational to um, much of Buddhist practice. And what is helpful to get a sense of is what it is, what it isn't, and the kinds of attitudes to bring to it. Because meditation doesn't exist in a vacuum like most other things don't exist in vacuums. And so for many people, they come to meditation with all kinds of ideas about what it is. And uh, it's just very useful to be clear about what this meditation is and what it isn't. So I, I have never been a scholar, and so I'm not familiar with all of the different kinds of meditation that exist across all of the different traditions. But I am very aware that in most traditions, there is a kind of meditation that they have. And these meditations are not all the same. They don't have the same practices, and they don't have the same result. So meditation is a word which is used for all of them. And the kind of meditation that I'm interested in is the kind of meditation that is, that is built around what the Buddha taught and the foundations of mindfulness. And, and then when we finish this series of classes, I'll be working with other kinds of meditation that include and branch out from the foundations of mindfulness. And so that will be at a, a choice point we'll get to, and I'll give it back to the group as to we'll have several different choices where we want to go and where we want to focus is what the group wants. So I'm not going to decide for you. I'll let you guys decide, and then we can move in that direction together. Okay? So meditation is not about thinking. And it's not about um, escaping from what's happening. And even though we are interested in developing concentration enough so that our minds can settle, this meditation is not about absorbing into an object where we shut out what's happening. Okay? So we want to gather things in and settle, but we're not wanting to shut out sensations or sounds or what's happening after a certain degree of collectedness, we're wanting to find and direct our attention to what's actually happening. And the purpose for that, or the reason for that, is, is, is that as incredibly nourishing as it is to absorb into a single object, the mind goes into a state of, of rapture and bliss, and there's a kind of like holiday from the world which is profoundly restorative. And it's very good for sharpening the faculties of the mind. But as soon as the conditions change and you're not able to focus that way, then you're back with the same old kinds of things that you were before. And those same old things are the kinds of things that cause aggravation and irritation and frustration. And, you know, we want and we don't want and we want to get rid of and we want to hold on. And the kinds of things that cause our uh, dissatisfaction in life is... Is, is what we're having to, to, to deal with. Insight meditation, which is the basis of the kind of meditation we are going to be learning for the series of class, takes a certain amount of concentration, but doesn't then exclude sensations or thoughts or feelings, but focuses attention on the nature of what it is that we're observing so that we begin to understand things from the perspective of how they actually are rather than the appearances that tend to be what confuse us 
and tend to be what perpetuates the sense of n not feeling content or satisfied or at ease or peaceful or a sense of um, uh, understanding what's going on. In our normal way of looking at the world, we tend to look at stuff as being permanent, as having its, a nature that lasts, and of being satisfactory, you know? So, like, whatever it is, you know, an ice cream, a cup of coffee, a new computer, a hike in the mountains, a sunset, you know, there's, there's a sense of something about these things as being solid, that there's something about them as being inherently satisfying, and that there's something about them which is, uh, uh, it's going to last. And those, those things absolutely is not the way that reality is based on. So when we start looking at what's going on with the capacity to see the nature of it is changing, the nature of it is not being fixed and static, and the nature of it is not being inherently satisfactory, not as a way of putting on like a, a sour grapes or a wet blanket or a, you know, a, a dull tone on life, but as a way of cutting through the, the, um, the delusion that we tend to bring to everything that we see, then the result is, is the opposite of feeling sad and feeling morose. We start to feel happy and joyful and peaceful and content and not confused because we're not relating to things in a way expecting it to be different than the way that it is. Okay? So sometimes people come to meditation and they have this wanting or this longing for psychic phenomena. And even though meditation is the way to develop psychic phenomena, and it is something that can happen at a certain stage of meditation, that's not going to be the purpose or the point of what we're doing here. And if psychic phenomena ever does develop in your meditation practice, it's really important to have the right relationship with it because it's incredibly seductive and it can take you down a very deep and uh, rabbit warren where you lose the plot of why we're actually doing this in the first place. And just by way of context, you know, when I was first introduced to meditation in 1979, I was in a class and Jack Engler was teaching and he was talking about the Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist psychology, as well as sharing stories of some of these great meditation masters that he knew and practiced with and interviewed and studied. And one of them was Deepama. And I don't have a picture of her in here. I should, but I don't. And she was um, a, a woman who was born in Bangladesh and had an enormous life of suffering, as well as an enormous faith in meditation. And so after a certain point, she started meditating, and very, very quickly, her mind focused and had very profound insight. And so after not a very long period of time, she attained to the level where she no longer experienced any form of aversion or um, desire. So she was a, 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 the third stage of enlightened. There's four stages, okay? and extraordinary. 
So her teacher, Manindraji, wanted to have a students he could see if the old classical ways of teaching people psychic powers were still valid. But he wanted people who were extremely well established in their meditation practice because if they weren't, then the tendency or the possibility of them being seduced by the excitement and the power and the pride that goes along with it was too high. So he picked Deepama as one of his, his guinea pigs and he showed her how to, to he, he used her as a way of seeing if the old styles of teaching psychic powers were going to work. And she mastered all of them. And so, and then the stories about what she was able to do was quite, you know, it's quite something because it takes us out of our normal, what we believe is possible in this world. Yeah. And so many years later, when somebody was asking her a question about, you know, how long it would take for her to redevelop those powers because she after that she no longer she didn't polish them she didn't utilize them she just let them go she said it would take her a few days to do that which you know for most of us is just unfathomable but the reason why she wasn't interested in keeping them operational was because the real pot of gold wasn't the psychic powers but the real pot of gold was the peace and the clarity and the loving kindness that comes from insight you know and so the Buddha described it a little bit like, you know, a lady showing off her underpants. It's like not done. <laughs> you know, just utilizing psychic powers for display is, is not done. If it's used in a, as a way of helping people to wake up, if it's used in support of uh, others' well-beings, then there's, that's considered a skillful way of utilizing them. But oftentimes what happens in our contemporary world is, is, is that people don't have the moral or ethical basis, and so they just they take it and they run with it and they get into uh, harm's way. Yeah. So our focus is to use the foundation of mindfulness as a way of understanding what actually happens and how it is that we get into problems, okay? Why is it that we suffer? And how come our life feels maybe not so satisfying or a little bit like we feel something's constantly wrong or we feel a sense of like endless emptiness inside of ourselves? And so when we begin to learn how to meditate, then our attention surely shifts around so that that is not the abiding experience that we're dealing with all the time. And there's more a sense of ease and well-being and clarity and uh, contentment. Yeah. So now one of the things about meditation, which is also really... Um, very, very important. This is that, you know, if I were to hand out a piece of paper and ask you to write down, you know, the kinds of things that you valued and the kinds of things that you wanted to, the behaviors that you respected and the things that you didn't respect, you know, I think many of us would be able to do that. You know, on a piece of paper, we could, 
we could articulate what our core values were and we could articulate the kinds of behavior that we respected and that we wanted to live by and the kinds of things that we didn't, all right? So for myself, you know, I ascribe or aspire to live a life of harmlessness, a life of kindness, a life of generosity, a life of service, you know, these kinds of things. But the reality is, is, is that when something is really challenging, okay, so sitting in a meditation hall with lovely people where we're in noble silence, where we're taking the precepts, is one circumstance. But in daily life, when you're dealing with people who are unscrupulous or who are unkind or who are cruel or who are manipulative or, you know, where somebody comes up and does something to you deliberately to hurt you, you know, this is a different circumstance. <clears throat> if, a, if our life situation changes, there's not enough food, there's not enough water, it's a different circumstance. And our primal instincts get activated and our aggression gets activated and our greed gets activated and our like survival instinct gets activated and all of these things can get activated and it can be contrary to our sense of how we want to live, right? So... A society creates laws around, you know, it's not okay to smack people, it's not okay to kill people, it's not okay to steal things from people. And those are external rules that are created that help everybody more or less move in a similar direction. But they're external, okay? And when pressure gets to be a certain level, then it's often the case for many people that they're challenged to keep those external rules because they haven't internalized them. When we know for ourselves the value of being harmless and the value of being honest and the value of not stealing, and we uproot the capacity to do things that are contrary to our values, then it doesn't matter how much pressure we are under. We will, we will tow the narrow line because it's an internal value that we have internalized rather than just following the rules of society. Now, the reason why this is useful is because it's a little bit like, what's a good example? Well, pickling, you know, if you take a cucumber and you sit it in a pickling bucket and it sits there long enough, the pickling is through and through. It's not just on the outer layer, you know. And so meditation is a little bit like pickling, pickling ourselves with goodness and pickling ourselves with integrity and pickling ourselves with virtue so that no matter what kind of circumstance that we are up against, the pickle through and through has the taste of pickle. It's not going to be something different than that. Whereas in our ordinary world, the way it works is because of an external authority imposing the pickling. And so people are following the rules because of some sense of being shamed or punished by the external authority if they don't. And with meditation, it's dropping it in and transforming the basis that it would allow us to go in opposition to what we know is unskillful. It's not an external authority. It's a deep internal conviction about what is right.
Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, is that because Buddhist meditation, I mentioned this last time and I'll mention it again, because Buddhist meditation is really about developing the muscles of the mind, it's not about taking on certain kind of theistic ideas or not believing in certain kinds of religious beliefs, that people from the religious beliefs that you are at are welcome, you're welcome to be exactly where you're at. You're ex welcome to have the beliefs that you have and still learn meditation. And it's important to know that, that you don't need to feel like you have to be self-identified as a Buddhist in order to practice meditation. In the monastery in England, only a small minority of the people who came self-identified as Buddhist. It's a Christian culture. And most of the people who came were very content being Christian. And there was never an issue around that, you know. That's not an, that's not an issue. So in terms of attitudes, you know, one of the things that we will find is, is, is that the attitudes that we normally have in our daily life are attitudes that we will bring to our meditation. And because we live in a fast food culture, then we expect instant results and we often don't have perspective of the kind of time frame that we think is like needed in order to be uh, a competent. And so we can be very impatient when after 10 minutes we don't have this, you know, overwhelming sense of clarity and peace and all the rest of that. And like with anything, you know, meditation, to be good at most anything requires persistence, it requires training, it requires practice, it requires conviction, it requires determination, it requires skillful instruction, and the same is true with meditation. And so it's very likely that you will start seeing results very soon. But the kinds of results that start releasing the roots that allow us to feel confused, for many of us, this is a, a, a long-term prospect with meditation. It's not a short-term, not a short-term event. So the other thing, which I mentioned last time, I'll mention again, is, is that many of us have very deep-seated habits that are not kind at all to ourselves. And we harm ourselves in the way that we judge and criticize and shame and slander and berate ourselves. And it's so deeply um, embedded in our systems, it's like wallpaper. We don't even, we don't even notice it, you know? You don't even notice the wallpaper because you live with it. And this attitude is not a, an attitude that is useful for anything. And it's certainly not useful in meditation. So we need to bring forward the attitude of self-respect and care and kindness and really start waking up to these habits that are not kind and not follow them. One of the things that's incredibly useful in meditation is honesty. Is to know really what is actually happening right now. Now in our ordinary life, 
I don't see many examples where honesty is heralded as such an incredibly important value to uphold. And in a lot of our world, there's all kinds of ways in which being slightly dishonest is the norm. And so just simply like in conversation when somebody asks you how you are, you know, the standard response is, I'm fine. Well, it's very likely you're not at all fine. <laughs> you might be sad, you might be depressed, you might be in physical pain, you might be nauseous, you might be aching, you might be tired, exhausted, you're not feeling fine. Yeah. But we don't have the social convention where being honest about how we actually are is considered acceptable speech. So the value of honesty cuts across the social patterning about the way we normally speak. Okay? Now, when we start meditating, we begin to see this as a rub. Not because we're wanting to tell everybody every single thing that's going on but that it becomes apparent that even these subtle levels of being dishonest have an impact in the way that we relate to what's going on in our experience. And so it's useful to start highlighting that and begin to see if there's a way to lean towards honesty rather than the social conventions that disallow honesty. You know. So instead of saying fine, you could say good enough, you know, which is not terribly committed one way or the other, but it's not a blanket, you know, thing. So it requires a certain amount of ingenuity to how to navigate our social situation and, and bring an increasing clarity around what's actually true. Okay. So let me pause there and just check and see if there's any questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.